my name is Fran Stoddard, and today the Orton Family Foundation is pleased to offer this event on ideas and tools for advancing civil discourse in communities. Communities thrive when people in them know how to listen to each other. In these Heart and Soul Talks, we feature stories and insights from Community Heart and Soul, a community development model that builds stronger, healthier, and more economically vibrant small cities and towns. Joining us today with ideas and tools for advancing civil discourse is a nationally recognized expert in the field and a mayor who has led the way in welcoming new residents and embracing the value they bring to the small town, sometimes in the face of protest. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Carolyn Lukensmeyer. She's the Executive Director of the National Institute for Civil Discourse. Hi, Carolyn. It's so great to have you here. Hi, Fran. I'm delighted to be with you this afternoon. And we're also very pleased to have Tom Harnett. He is the Mayor of Gardner, Maine. Hi, Tom. Thank you, Fran. Look forward to talking today. Okay. So before we get on with our guests, I will cover a few logistics. Each speaker will offer brief presentations, and then we'll have time for your questions. Many of you have already sent in questions during the registration. We have lots of questions, and we'll try to do our best to cover those and um, any new ones that might come in. We have over 475 registrants for our call today from across North America and beyond, so we'll be muting our listeners to get as clean an audio signal as possible. Actually, I think we have somebody from every, every state in the union, so that's pretty exciting. In your email is a link to our Google document for note-taking, comments, and questions. Orton's Caitlin Davison will be taking notes that she will proofread and refine after the call, providing a great resource for you in the future. You can add your own comments or questions to the document in real time in the edit mode. However, that edit mode in Google Docs is limited to 50 contributors at a time, so if you're not active in the document, please return to the view-only mode to allow others to contribute. We also leave this document up after the call for your continued input and reference. You can also follow along with our Twitter feed, at Orton Foundation. In a few days, we will send links to the call notes and the recording to all registrants. If you're having any trouble with the Google Docs during the call, you try the refresh icon. That usually um, uh, makes it all better again. But if you're having that or any other technical issues, you can email Caitlin Davison at cdavison at Orton. Org. Thanks so much. So, on to our guests. As a leader in the field of deliberative democracy, Dr. Carolyn Lukensmeyer works to re-energize democracy. She previously served as founder and president of America Speaks, an award-winning nonprofit organization that promoted nonpartisan initiatives to engage citizens and leaders through the development of innovative public policy tools and strategies. She also serves on the Board of Directors for the Orton Family Foundation, and we're thrilled to have her with us today. Go ahead, Carolyn. Thanks very much, Fran, and congratulations to Orton and the Heart and Soul Process. To have <clears throat> more than 475 people on this call from every state is very impressive in terms of the kind of service that you are providing to people all over the country. I'm honored to be part of this discussion today. The issue of incivility and political dysfunction is pretty much central in terms of our public conversations these days. At NICD, in beginning in the early stages of the primary of the 2016 presidential election, 
we literally began to get thousands of emails and social media messages from Americans all over the country really concerned about the state of our public and our political discourse. And often those messages kind of ended with a sense of resignation. Uh, yes, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed, but, but what can we do? So we put our heads together at the Institute and said, you know, we're feeling in the country that our social norms and, and civility and respect are actually quite threatened. And yet we all know as Americans that democracy has always been a conversation from the very beginning. And the capacity to be civil and respectful with people who truly hold a profoundly different view than you do is essential to the health of a democratic society. The uh, Weber Shandrick, a very large media communications firm, has done a civility survey in the United States every year for the last seven years. And when they did it in the near the end of 2016, they found that 75% of Americans, all ages, all ethnicities, all political persuasion, 75% of us say that incivility in the country is now at a crisis stage. And about that same number, slightly smaller, think that it's actually reducing the respect for the United States in countries around the world. So the next question becomes, what do we do about this? And that's where people, every single one of you who are on the phone call, the way we like to think about it at the National Institute is, no, none of us as individuals are going to change the large political rhetoric or change this fake news environment that we're now in. But also, every single one of us have spheres of influence in our communities. And my sphere of influence has a link to many, many other spheres of influence. And the way in which we can begin to shift social norms is if more and more of us in our own spheres of influence first really take a deep breath and reflect, are there ways in which I'm holding judgments of other people that mean when they start to speak to me, I've already predetermined that I'm not really going to listen or I'm only going to listen long enough to rebut or long enough to actually put out the point of view that I think is right. You know, as you're going about having this conversation in your communities, just a point of fact that you might be interested in. At the Institute, we've talked to political historians of every ideological perspective, persuasion, I should say, and they all say exactly the same thing. That this phenomena that we're now seeing in the United States of people who voted for Hillary or people who voted for Trump still hating and demonizing and vilifying each other 10 months after the election. This hasn't happened since Reconstruction and the introduction of Jim Crow laws in the South. So this is new. Political polarization is not new. It's been, begun probably 30 years ago and just deepened across three decades. But this happening in our families, in our neighborhoods, at our workplaces, where we as individual people have now fallen into the pattern of making a judgment about each other 
that mean we don't really listen and we don't really connect. So step one is just getting clear, who are the groups of Americans that I've closed out, that I actually no longer listen, either neither with an open mind and certainly not with an open heart. And once you're clear about that, then that what we are helping people do all over the country, but we're particularly focusing our resources in four states, which I've looked at the list, and I know there are lots of you on the phone from all four states. Those states are Maine, Ohio, Iowa, and Arizona. But frankly, the materials and tools we've developed are readily accessible on the web and can be used any place in the country. All you have to do is go to www.revivecivility.org. Let me repeat that, www.revivecivility.org. And when you go there, you'll find the tools that will enable you to sit face-to-face with someone who thinks very differently than you do. Maybe it's on the conservation of federal public lands. In Arizona, obviously, immigration and the wall are the hottest issues. In Ohio, we're finding that opioids are the really most challenging issue in terms of people's beliefs about what should be done for people who have that problem. Should the government be involved? Shouldn't the government be involved? So no matter where you live, no matter what the issue is, the potential for having the experience of once again connecting across that divide. If I acknowledge personally, just given my own background, I came of age in the second wave of feminism in the United States, and given much of Donald Trump's rhetoric and much of Donald Trump's behavior with women, it actually was very difficult for me to see how any woman of my age bracket could choose to pull that lever. So I've actually done what I'm just suggesting to you. I've sat down with other women, my age, my race, not necessarily my background or my income level, but where we made a different choice based on values we hold about women. Now, neither of us convinced each other about how either of us should vote, but I did leave those conversations understanding something very important. I took Donald Trump literally about what I thought would happen if he were the president relative to positions and policies that matter for women. Women that voted for Trump felt like that was his language to make a point, his rhetoric, and did not believe, do not believe, that it will inform the way he puts forward policies that impact women. Now, I imagine for some of you my choice to be this direct and this concrete has raised all kinds of reactions yourself in terms of where you see that language and that behavior and what its implications are in his role as the leader of the country. So I did it for a reason. This divide is touching us in places that we all really care deeply about. And we need support. We need the safety to take the step of how do I have that conversation, particularly in small towns in America where our lives are so woven together, if we allow these kinds of chasms to keep us from dealing with what we want to do about early education options for kids in our towns, because we can't reconcile this other big difference, then we really are not part of what it takes to create the conversations, 
that are necessary to have the quality of life that every single person on this phone wants to have where they live, in their families, and where they work. So we hope that all of you that are listening to this will, in fact, yourself think about, given your role in your community, is there a way you could link this revived civility work to a church or link this revived civility work to a coffee house, as is happening in Maine with makeshift coffee, or is happening in Iowa with the Wallace Centers? We've been discovering at NICD that hundreds of efforts have popped up around this country in the same last 10 months to actually pick up this banner to say freedom, dignity, liberty requires the capacity for civil conversations across our most profound differences. And NICD wants to patch these efforts together, shine a bright light on them, so it doesn't matter if you're in El Paso, Texas, or if you're in Duluth, Minnesota, you know that not only is this happening in your community, this is happening in communities large, small, rural, urban, all across the United States. You know, one thing that social scientists tell us that's pretty sobering is that the breaking down of social norms can happen much more quickly than the building up of social norms. And that just tells me two things. Given that civility and respect have lost standing in our communities, and it now is okay to use bigoted language, to use even racist language, to use attacking language, that we can't start soon enough to start pushing back the other direction, we have to hold each other accountable and create the environment to re-establish norms. And we have to commit to being in this for the long haul. We want to start citizen to citizen, but we're also developing an app that can be used on the Internet to actually help citizens hold elected officials accountable for their civility and respect, both in language and behavior. I truly hope this has been helpful, and I'm very much looking forward to responding to your questions. Fran, thanks a million. Thank you, Carolyn. That's a terrific start in getting us all thinking um, in new ways um, around this issue. So Tom Harnett is now serving his third term as mayor of Gardner, Maine. Tom recently retired from the state office of the Attorney General, where he had served as an assistant Attorney General and established civil rights teams in more than 220 schools statewide. Tom was active in Gardner's Community Heart and Soul Project. So welcome, Tom, and thank you for sharing your stories. Go ahead. Well, thank you, Fran, and, and thank you, Orton, for putting on another one of these wonderful conferences. And I want to follow up on some of the things that Dr. Lukensmeyer commented on, but I'm going to do it by talking about an incident, sort of a case study that happened in Gardner, uh, what I learned from that, and what are some of the challenges that I see going forward. Uh, and to, to go back a little bit, each uh, I started my third term this January, and we had a relatively new council, which I was excited about. And in February of each year, we do a goal-setting session. 
where we try to identify the issues that we want to work on during the coming year, and they can be as mundane as what roads are going to be paved, uh, or they can be ambitious in terms of developing a waterfront. One of the goals that I put forward this year was to make Gardner a welcoming community to refugees and political and asylum seekers. It's a very big issue in the state of Maine. We've had an influx of refugees from Syria, from Somalia, from Iraq, and those had been limited to our larger cities of Portland and Lewiston, uh, but now it was spreading to other communities. And I wanted to make sure that people understood that one of the values we identified in our heart and soul process was to be welcoming and to be family and make an affirmative statement that we wanted these folks to come and move, work, and live in Maine. And that was not purely altruistic. We need population. Maine is the oldest state in the nation. We are dying faster than we're giving birth. And if we are going to survive, we need new people. Now, when I did this and got the council's unanimous support, I had no idea the backlash that we were going to receive. Within hours of making the announcement that we had done this, the executive director of a political party, whose name I won't mention, but it starts with R, um, who is aptly named Mr. Savage, um, began a relentless attack on me personally and our city council using some of the terminology that uh, Dr. Lukensmeyer mentioned in terms of bigoted comments, racist comments, and very attacking language. He did that without even talking to me. And I got to tell you, at that moment, I was not feeling stability. I was feeling real anger. And I called him in that state of mind and spoke to him, and he agreed to retract his statements, but he did not. Um, after that, we had a lot of comments on social media, both in the newspapers and on our website or on my Facebook site and other sites uh, that were very negative about what we were doing. And we were threatened with people saying they were going to come to our next meeting to disrupt it in any way that was possible. And I was afraid because I don't like those kinds of meetings. And two, I was worried that our new counselors in particular would back off their commitment to this issue. So at that meeting, I did something I'd never done before. We have an open comment period, and I never speak at that, but I decided to speak, and I spoke for about 30 minutes about what we were doing, what we were not trying to do, and I talked to an audience that, as we say in Maine, was loaded for bear. The, uh, the city hall chambers were packed. And I spoke and talked about my family's immigrant experience. I challenged people politely about their family's immigrant experience and did so not engaging in personal attacks but talking about policies and, and my moral compass. And when I finished, I fully expected people to lash into us, and they, they did not. Uh, one of my most vocal opponents, who's somebody who ran a very negative campaign against me for mayor, said, you know, now that you mention it, I remember when the Vietnamese refugees came here after the Vietnam War, 
And I remember all the wonderful things they did for our community. So by having the discussion in a reasoned, personable tone, we were able to sort of quiet the naysayers. Um, but having said that, you know, I read a blog from uh, Dr. Lukensmeyer recently where she was talking about our response to the hurricane and how one hurricanes and how wonderful we are. And I realized that to truly be civil, you can't say, I am going to be civil tonight. You need to practice civility. You need to practice civility when you're behind that person in the supermarket that has 22 items in the 14 items or less lane. Uh, you need to practice civility when you lose that parking space that you wanted to get. Um, and I realize that it's a lifelong commitment. And I also know that local politics is the most personal form of politics. We see our neighbors in the supermarket. We see them downtown. And if we can't be civil, we don't have a community. And lastly, in wrapping up, I have a great concern about what this lack of civility, this nationwide phenomenon, is doing to young people. Uh, I have two kids. I have a daughter uh, named Eloise, who's 23, and a son named Joe, who is about to turn 21. And they find the political discourse so distasteful that they want nothing to do with it. They, they don't want to go to meetings. They don't want to get active. And I really fear for our country that if we lose our youth, then we are going down a path that is terribly frightening to me. And we have to do everything we can to try to focus our conversations on policies and not on personalities. It's okay to use facts. It's okay to use arguments. But it is never okay to denigrate the person on the other side. And I look forward to being able to uh, hopefully answering some questions that you might have. And thank you very much, Fran. Thank you, Tom. It's terrific. And since you, you mentioned youth, um, I'm going to skip right um, to our youth question. I do want to let everybody know we, we have uh, well over 30 questions that came in, so I've been uh, grouping them uh, with some help with um, Caitlin Davison. So it might not be in the same order that you, know, you see in the Google Doc, and we hope to get to yours, but it might be subsumed into another question that was very similar. So um, I'd like to get to Mary, both Mary Jane and in Massachusetts and Ellen in North Carolina are interested in ways to bring youth, including college students, into the conversation and to help them navigate civil discourse, both in the schools and online. Um, so, Carolyn, I'm, I'm going to go to you first about tips for working with young people who clearly do not want to be, it seems through Tom, part of, um, you know, this uh, uncivil discourse, but how do we, how do we work with um, young people and students? Well, I certainly can understand, as I'm sure everyone on the phone can, about why young people are backing away from engagement with, particularly with our politics. Just look at what they've been watching. Uh, it's not a very inviting scene. So what, uh, what NICD has done is went to young people and just listened and said what would motivate them to engage both in things like following the issues, voting, and in fact being part of the solution to this degradation of our social norms. And one of the things that we discovered is 
they love to engage through their devices, which I know that everybody on the phone knows, and particularly parents of teenagers, we've heard thousands of times or hundreds of times that if I want to talk to my son or daughter, I text them. So we've actually created a software platform which any and all of you on the phone could use immediately. It's called Text Talk Civility. And you just take your cell phone and you text the following number, 89800. And in the message line, you write civility. And basically, that takes you to the back-end computer, which has a script, has some videos, a couple of them are created by young people. And it, then the, the phone becomes the facilitator of a small group discussion. We suggest that three or four young people be using one phone together. So they just follow the guidance that they're given through their texting system. And what it does, many of us on the phone would know from earlier decades that we often called this active listening, but it fundamentally walks them through a set of tasks that help them understand the difference between listening to understand why my life experience led me to this value or this position on this issue and why your life experience led you to a different view on this issue. And our experience has been just outstanding. When young people use this device, very quickly they respond to say, okay, I really, I got it. I got the message. So now we want to do this again. We want to do this on a tough issue. What about immigration? What about tax reform? So at, we are now developing more scripts that can also be loaded into that platform. But particularly, we, we started this actually two years ago in Ohio where we experimented with curriculum at the high school level, and you'll find all of those materials up on the website that I mentioned, www.revivecivility.org. So there's now curriculum there for high school students, there's curriculum there for junior high school students, and I think we were surprised, but we're now getting requests from elementary school teachers. We haven't yet created that, but we will. Another key principle, Mary Jane and Ellen, and I'm sure many other people on this call care about this deeply, anytime we move into a school system or into a set of community service youth groups, we immediately set up what we call a brain trust, where young people themselves, become the governing, innovative group that says, this worked, this didn't work, let's try that. And I'll say one last thing, and I hope I haven't gone on too long. <laughs> Particularly when it's challenging, when you don't seem to have a group of young people that have a foothold to begin with, we have found that holding contests is a very intriguing and effective way to get young people involved and put up a small um, award system. So have classes compete with each other. Which class can engage the most number of other people in the school in this conversation in the shortest time frame? And whatever group does that actually wins a small scholarship to do a community project in their town. Young people love this because they not only love to compete on a positive thing, but they despite how uh, upset and disengaged they are from politics, we have generations of young people that really want to do service. 
So we combined the texting with the possibility of a service project at the end. I hope I haven't gone on too long. No, terrific work, Carolyn. That's very very exciting work. So, um, and we also at the end of our um, Google Doc will have um, all of these resources there again for you, um, if you didn't have time to take them down. Uh, so, can I add, add something yeah. to that brief, very briefly? Sure, sure. Um, and it's, it's based on my experience working with students in the civil rights team programs in Maine. Right. Uh, because we worked with students as young as elementary school. We had teams in grades three through five, middle school teams, and high schools. And I think the most important thing when you're dealing with young people, and I include college students in that, is they want to be taken seriously. Um, they want to be heard. And it is so critical for you to listen. And I liked what Dr. Lukasmeyer said about letting them be the ones that do it. Um, let them lead what's going on. Students that I worked with were much less interested in talking than they were in doing things. They thought talking just made things take so long to, to, to bring about change. And while talking was important, giving them action-oriented things to do that they think are important is a wonderful way to engage. Terrific. Thank you, Tom. So another, the, several questions came in about how you effectively invite people to have civil conversations. In other words, a lot of people, um, you know, and Tom, you know this, they, they come to City Hall when they're angry about something and they're ready for a fight, but you want to persuade them to come in to have real civil discourse. Let's have a conversation about this. Is it bringing them in earlier? Um, is there is there something like you did with your speech that seemed to diffuse um, uh, the, the the anger a little bit? How do you how do you pull people in to have civil conversations before things get nasty? Uh, um, do you want to start really, with that one? I will, and, and that's a difficult question. Um, and I thought a lot about did the talk that I gave. Was that really civility, or did I just convince people of something, and we really didn't have the discussion? Hmm. But what we tried to do is to make sure that there was balanced representation in the audience. I mean, I went, we went and sought out people that we knew agreed with us. So if and when there was a conversation, it would be a balanced conversation. And it would be a conversation where you set out ground rules in the beginning, again, as simple as we're talking about policies, positions, and beliefs. We're not talking about personalities. And if you let one side dominate, and historically in our community that's been the naysayers, uh, those that are opposed to almost everything, it, it tells the people on the other side you know, maybe you shouldn't talk because you're just going to be at the receiving end of vitriol. And we wanted to make sure that there was a balanced presentation, and that means a pro person and a con person, not ten people in a row saying the same position. Um, to really give, to empower people to speak up and know that they're going to be taken seriously, they're going to be heard, and we as the council are not going to allow them to be denigrated and the subject of personal attack. So it's really about increasing the number of people that come to those types of forums. 
And Carolyn, I'm not sure if you had a, a follow-up with this because you certainly talked about changing norms again, and some people are even curious about right, is, there, is there right language to address realist issues when there's such polarization? Um, any 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 follow-up about you know kind of how you how you bring people into a civil conversation? Nope. I hope we still have Carolyn here. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I had put the That's phone on mute because someone opened. My, I apologize. I'm actually going to share. I I'm actually going to share a story from my time at America Speaks. We ran a national discussion on our debt and our deficit, which was the hottest political issue people on the phone will probably remember in the midterm elections in 2010. And we organized people all over the country. And outside of many of those places where people, you know, some people wanted to come and have the civil conversation with facts across their liberal, conservative, moderate differences. But there were protesters outside those events as well. And what we did was we had staff people walk up and down the protest line just quietly saying what we were doing, showing of you know an agenda, showing the facts, and inviting them to come in and sit down and talk. Now, not all of them did, but I think everyone on the phone, and remember, this was a really hot issue. I happened to be in Philadelphia, and about 75% of the people who were outside protesting chose to come inside, sit at tables, and really engage. And I think the message is most Americans, even when they're really angry about an issue, if you can present to them that this form is different, this form is not going to try to talk them out of anything, but this form is going to require them to listen to people of difference and people of difference to listen to them. People want to be heard, and they want to help make these decisions that are impacting their lives. So it's just thinking backwards from the people that you're confronting or that are confronting you. What in this circumstance would make it believable to these people, this person, that we sincerely want to listen to them? And we're going to give them the space, as long as they agree also to listen, to have their say. Hmm. Great. Uh, another whole set of questions that was so interesting are tips and tools for hard but productive conversations when you disagree. So this is these are people, they feel passionate about something, and they ask questions like, how do you stay true to your own values? How do you stay calm? How do you listen well? And how do you, you know, really seek true understanding? And clearly they're, um, this, this is not an easy thing. Uh, Tom, you certainly had this. You had an angry reaction, and yet, you backed off and found a way to talk about your values um, uh, with, without that without that anger. So, um, what what is your response to those questions about um, how to how to kind of keep to your personal values, um, but really have a good conversation and also listen? Well, I, I wish I knew the answer to all those questions um, because we could to take care of a lot of these problems. Uh, but I think one of the most important things that you just said was how do you stay true to your own message? And I think we have to remember that being civil does not mean you're going to cave on something that you believe firmly in. Um, what it means is you're going to listen 
to somebody with a different viewpoint and maybe try to convince them as to why there are problems with with that viewpoint and you might not be able to do so but you're going to you're going to listen to him or her and and they know they have been heard but it doesn't mean I mean, if, if I had had 10 people complaining that night, I wouldn't have said, oh, forget it. We really shouldn't welcome immigrants and refugees. Thank you for educating me. Um, and again, I think it's having those conversations with a backdrop of rules, you know, just sort of norms in, in discussion um, and sticking to your positions, but again, and I repeat this, not making it about personality, but making it about a difference of opinion in policy. And we can have differences of opinion, but it, the goal is not to necessarily convince everybody of one side or the other. That, that's Pollyannish to think that's going to happen. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's all. Whole... Yeah, please, Carolyn, go ahead. You know, this is something that all the research in brain science in the last couple of years has really been helpful in terms of the how-to that I think you're, the people who asked this question were focused on. Mm -hmm. It's the difference between once the, the, the amygdala, that part of our brain, has gotten stimulated, it becomes physiologically very difficult to back away from the strength of the emotion, whatever it might have been, anger being a very obvious one. And that literally until the biochemistry of our blood changes, we're not going to be able to completely let go of that anger. So both in terms of when it's you yourself or when you're being confronted by someone else is really the wisdom to be aware, for if it's you, to self-reflect you know, am I in a place at this point where I just need to spout off? This is, and then I should do that in some place that's not public, not attacking someone, but I just need to run and let it run its cycle. I need the catharsis. The same thing for someone else who is at that stage in terms of how their hormones and blood chemistry have gotten involved. And then you, everybody on this phone call also knows those moments when you have the first flash of anger, but it hasn't really taken over your physiological system, it's just you're aware of it and you can make a choice at that moment. This is not a time that I want to go with my reaction. This is a time that I want to proactively engage with this person in a way that we both might learn something about why we feel the way we feel instead of just trying to bully the other person into changing their perspective. Okay, thank you, Carolyn. I'm going to skip over to, um, there's a question about how community members can create a space to, to talk with their local leaders. Um, there were, uh, someone actually from Vermont wrote uh, that he's really feels challenged in talking to um, his mayor, feels his mayor isn't, listening, um, wants to know if there are ways um, that he can get a conversation going with leaders about values. I don't know if you have a special tip as, as a mayor about um, how citizens can, can approach you at certain 
certainly seems like like you are a good listener. But um, any any recommendations for James? Yeah, I would tell James that he should try to set up a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the mayor. Um, in a forum like that, the mayor might not feel as challenged as if you do it at a regular city council meeting or a public meeting. And I think you could just have a deeper and more honest conversation. If that doesn't work, you know, and I think this is the norm, at least throughout New England, all of our city council meetings begin with an opportunity for any member of the public to address an issue that is not otherwise on the agenda. And you can take advantage of that, and again, by not attacking the mayor personally, because I have to protect all mayors, uh, and but, you know, saying we have an issue, I think we have an issue that needs to be discussed, and it sounds like what James is alluding to is that the elephant in the room sits there, but the mayor doesn't want to talk about it. And that, that's a problem, um, because if you're just there to avoid conflict, um, conflict can move you forward. Um, but I would, I would try to do it personally first. I'll give an example. I got a letter from a young man who was upset about the welcoming community thing and saying, you know, why can't we just train these people and send them back to their homes? And by the way, they have too many kids. And I wrote back saying, you know, sadly, these folks cannot go back to their homes. They've left because family members have been murdered, tortured, or worse. And he wrote back and, you know, said, thanks a lot. You know, I understand the different side. But then he also said, I was doing this for a merit badge, so we're probably not going to write any more letters. <laughs> wow. Okay, let's get to this. Is an if, I could, question. If, I could, if I could add in that, because a couple of things come to my mind. You know, people who have a motivation to run for elected office themselves may not have a value system that would make them as open to that kind of one-on-one -on -one conversation as obviously Tom clearly is and does so effectively. So what we've often found possible, or it's possible that the citizen already has a reputation that the mayor knows about, that the mayor can predict what the conversation is going to be and just doesn't want to do it. Mm. So what we've often found is that it is very wise in those under those two circumstances, to use a third-party neutral. So an organization locally like we often find the League of Women Voters is extremely valuable in that regard, where they create the forum that allows a mayor to take the risk of meeting with one or more members of the public on a very hot topic. But the safety is that neither the mayor created the meeting nor the member of the public created the meeting. It really is an organization that is committed to effective democracy. So you might think, we've also found that some of these brain trusts that I mentioned that we've set up in some cities, very often mayors are off interested and more willing to listen to young people on some of the tough issues. So those might be another couple of options. Well, that's that's terrific, Carolyn, because the next segue in, into another question that folks from Colorado and Connecticut had were asking about ways formal and informal community groups and nonprofits 
um, outside local governments can help shape local discourse positively. So you've kind of addressed that, Tom. Do you, do you have anything to add about how other community groups can really help facilitate civil discourse? I think the most important thing there is to go out and tell them that their voice is important and you want them to come to meetings and to play an active role to get them involved on city committees. Um, I, I truly believe that the more voices you bring into a discussion, the better the decision-making process. And we think everyone knows that there's a way to participate. But that's just not true. Uh, sometimes you need to go meet with these groups and say, boy, you know, we'd love to hear from you at a city council meeting on this topic, or we would love for you to think about joining a committee that looks into these issues, because that's where a lot of the work gets done. But sometimes you need to be the one to reach out, and that's not just the mayor, that's anybody on council, anybody in the city, to make sure that the members of those organizations know that their voices count are important, and we want to hear them, and they will be listened to. Terrific, which also addresses some questions that came in about achieving true diversity in civil discourse, and you talk about really just bringing those people in. Um, an additional question that Patty from Connecticut asked is, what are indicators of success and or impact that you actually have bridged divide, bridge some divides um, and brought people of various backgrounds into to engage in deliberate democracy. Do you um, have indicators of success or, or impact, Carolyn? Absolutely. Um, I, I'm actually going to give an example with elected officials because we also work a lot with particularly members of state legislatures. And the, we, the, what we hold as the measures of impact there are where after they've gone through the workshop that we've designed for them called Building Trust Through Civil Discourse, that they demonstrate, they choose an action plan. What do we want to do in this session in the legislature that will demonstrate to the public that we are now working together in a different mode than we were before we had this experience? So one of the indicators is what number of laws are passed with bipartisan support that were stuck before, not even being addressed before, or were seen as an issue owned by the Democrats or seen as an issue owned by the Republicans. So I think you want – to me, there are two levels that you want to evaluate the impact. One is on personal behavior. It is transformative for many people – to actually have a conversation with someone who's very different. Our economics, our housing patterns mean that most of us really do not cross paths on a daily basis with someone who's very, very different than we are, although that's more likely if you're living in a smaller community. So the, just changing the person's ability to have that conversation is one very important impact data point. And the other is something that is a change in policy or a change in decision making or a change in a structure. Uh, the Idaho state legislature, having gone through that process, realized that, like has happened in many states and certainly is true in Congress, that members weren't having social opportunities to get to know each other as people. So they only saw each other's labels as labels on the floor. So one of the action steps they took 
was to institute an organized social time on a regular basis outside of the sessions. And the legislative staff was responsible for being creative in terms of what they did at each of these events, so there was a sense of innovation in it. So I think those are the kind of indicators that you want to look for for impact. Okay. And if, if I could just add on to that, that at, at the local level, um, she talked, uh, Dr. Lucas talked about. Carolyn is fine. All right, I know. I, was, I asked somebody what I should do, and it told me I should be respectful. But, um, <laughs> Carolyn, um, at the local level, particularly when you're, and I, I want to get back to the refugee and new Mainer folks, getting people together for a meal can be a yeah. huge uh, yeah. breaker of barriers. Um, the more people meet others that they think are not like them and find out that they have the same hopes and dreams for their children that we have for our children, and everybody likes food, and it just changes the entire dynamic, and it leads to conversations that can't take place at a city council meeting, but have to take place if we're going to create real community. You know, Tom, I, I'm really, I'm, I want to add one more that comes to mind when you said that one. Uh, NICD has done a lot of work around combating anti-Muslim speech and behavior, given how Muslims have really started being targeted in a very different way last year. And uh, it, it, we hooked up a lot of churches and synagogues and mosques to be working together. And the primary principle they all talked about was either share a meal together first or do a project, actually do something together, and then worry about talking about all the differences as a second step. Brilliant. Well, that, that might lead into uh, a couple people talked about some issues when there's a really long-term and difficult issue in the community, and I think this kind of heads towards a healing. But Carol in Alaska shared how recall elections really fractured the community. Uh, Leslie in Massachusetts is wondering about best steps to take when animosity just seems to be leading the way. Um, and someone uh, uh, from New Hampshire is also concerned about um, strategies when, when a long-term 25-year issue that's surrounded by disinformation and misinformation um, is out there. Uh, how can you how can you kind of turn that around and begin the healing so so people are listening to each other and and maybe it's it's food or um, are, are there other things that come to mind uh, from those examples questions? Uh, Carol, well, why don't you begin? I'm going to go back to one of the principles that I mentioned before. When it's that deep and that long-standing, very often it is necessary to actually have, and it could be in the community or it could be from outside the community, a truly neutral, non-aligned organization or group of people or even a very strong individual who is the lead person or organization in creating opportunities for the exploration of this, this long-standing, very, very ugly situation to begin to be addressed again. 
Greenville, North Carolina has gotten a lot of recognition for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission they put together based on some consulting help following the model that South Africa did to really deal with the lynchings that happened in Greenville, the school incidences that happened in Greenville, and you know, I don't, you can't get much more dramatic than that, than that divide in America, wherever you live. So think about, is there, can you identify a resource, either in your own community or outside of your community, who would be respected by both sides and trusted as neutral to create the environment that would begin the healing process? A second principle, and this is a very tough one for communities, because some people we're, are still holding all the emotional suffering of the chasm or of the break. Other people are just wanting to move on. And those are two completely different psychological places, whether it's about the recall issue in Alaska or I'm, I don't think I caught what Leslie's issue was. So the, when you design the opportunities for speaking about this and beginning to get the community to be back on track, you have to design the process, meaning the questions that are asked, meaning the time given to responding, so that both the people who need the healing and the people who become impatient and just want to go on, so that both of those points of view can shape the conversation, be part of the conversation, and at a certain point understand no, wait a minute. For the next three meetings, it needs to be only about healing. And for the two meetings after that, we're going to come back to problem solving and going forward. So those are a couple of the principles that I would share. That's great. Because a question just came in. We're almost out of time, and I'm getting close to your final comments. But just in, I live in a big city. Sometimes civility is what white residents call for when they are uncomfortable with the mode of protest chosen by people of color and other marginalized groups. How do you balance civility with oppressed people's rightful anger and outrage? Is, is that kind of those that need the healing and those that think, well, let's just move on? Is that sort of what you're addressing? Well, I'm really yeah. glad this question came up. And mm -hmm. there is, you know, there's nothing more baked into what it means to be American than to protest injustice. That's how we started. And there has to be the space for honest protest or for deeply impassioned protest, whether it's about black men being killed by policemen, whether it's about water in Flint, Michigan. I mean, you name it. The, the a sad part commentary is the number of issues that all of us on this phone could, in fact, mention. We wouldn't all agree. We, on this phone, some of us would feel differently about whether Issue X has a rightful protest. My, our message at the Institute is, the bottom line is, protesting also can be done respectfully and civilly. No reason not to be angry, but no reason to pick up a stone, no reason to pick up a bat. So it's when protest crosses the line to violence, and again, understandably, I'm I wouldn't even say that you could expect people protesting to be able to hold that line all the time. But we all, as a community of our country, want to come back to the place that there's enough respect in both directions that we absolutely 
absolutely respect the importance of, of protests against injustice and that we can hold some standards of civility as meaningful in the community at the same time. But never, never should civility be used to control protesting. What I've seen on college campuses, there's even a phrase for this at this point in time. The people who are protesting call it tone policing, that by invoking civility, you're trying to stop us from protesting. That is a, we just have to keep that clear line. Yes, we should be protesting. We should never use the concept of civility to keep people from protesting. And we have to come back to the social norms of civility and respect or the racism and bigotry is going to hold a larger power in our society for a long time to come. Thank you, I, I would add to that. I would add to that that the history of protest in this country is civil discourse. And when those, and I know this term will bother some, but are in the oppressor community, when they are saying you're acting in a way that is not civil, what they're really saying is I'm hearing some things I don't want to hear about the relationship that I have with the group that is rightfully claiming they have been oppressed. What they call a lack of civility is a discomfort on their end, and that's what they're struggling with. It's not about civility. It's about guilt. It's about questioning everything they thought to be true and maybe having those views challenged. Thank you, Tom. So a question for, for both of you as, as we're ending up this hour. Uh, quickly, so a first step um, you would advise um, people take towards authentic civil discourse in a divided community. So people are going to get off this phone call and go, okay, I'm going to take that first step to make things different in my town. What would you recommend? Tom, you want to go first? I guess it's one I've said before. I really think it is important, and we've all been to meetings where people set out ground rules at the beginning. I think it's important to set those out, um, that, you know, this is going to be how this is structured, and if it starts to get personal or it starts to get too angry, we're going to try to move it in a different direction. I think people want to have an idea of what they can expect. You want honest and open and frank conversation, but again, once it turns into denigrating people about personalities, I think the evening is over. So it's, it's, it's be, and that, that, that can be done in a very positive way, because we want this to work. Thank you, Tom. And, and Carolyn, what, what is your advice? Well, I'm kind of surprised at what first came to my mind, but I think it's important, and we haven't mentioned it at any point in this call. Look for the humor in the situation. <laughs> and, I, and I realize some of these situations are past humor, but the bottom line is there's almost always something that can touch the place in us that can smile and see the absurdity of what we're watching or whatever. So don't lose your sense of humor. And then, particularly, I want to uh, appeal to, or I don't even know what the right verb is, of 
the Revive Civility campaign or in initiative that NICD has launched, go to that website, www.revivecivility.org, and use the tools and give us feedback on the tools. And for all of you in Maine, of which I know there are many on the phone, next Friday, October 6th, from 10 to 12, we're doing the formal kickoff of the Revive Civility work that will be based in Maine and the Hannaford Auditorium at the University of Southern Maine from 10 to 12. And we'd love to see any and all of you there. Fantastic. Well, I, I want to thank you both for the incredibly rich information and, uh, in this call and for caring so much um, about uh, America. Thank you, Carolyn, uh, Dr. Carolyn Lukensmeyer and the National Institute for Civil Discourse. Well, thanks for having us. And Mayor Tom Harnett of Gardner, Maine, thank you for your embrace of leadership and joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And many thanks to all of you across the United States and beyond for joining us today. We hope you'll take a moment to fill out our brief survey to help us continue to improve our call series. Look for a link to our survey under announcements. For National Community Planning Month in October, we will focus on getting the community involved in creating successful, comprehensive plans. Join us on October 19th from 2 to 3 p.m. to hear, uh, that's Eastern Standard Time, to hear from three planners who got residents involved through community heart and, the Community Heart and Soul model. You can learn how community engagement leads to meaningful, comprehensive plans that align vision and actions based on what matters most to residents. I'd also like to thank the Orton Family Foundation who made these sessions possible. Look for a recording of this terrific call. I think I'm going to listen to it again. Uh, that will be sent to all res registrants and posted on our website, www.orton.org, in the next few days. For the Orton Family Foundation, I'm Fran Spotter. Have a great day. Bye-bye. <laughs>